This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And I'm confused, Kyle. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year. This is 1982, the year we're talking about this season, in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, even though we're forever in blue jeans, we're talking about Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Steve Martin, M. Rigby Reardon in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Will $200 be enough in advance, Mr. Reardon? 200 I'd shoot my grandmother. No criminal is too tough for him. <laughs> no pain is too great. <laughs> Where'd you learn that? At camp. No joke. Too disgusting. Do I look like a dame? Not as much as I do. I haven't turned on a charm yet. He'll laugh in the face of danger. He'll dace in the fange of laughter. I'm on an important case. I need your help. These people we're dealing with are killers. Oh, thanks for telling me. I'll say something like I don't wear blue jeans. You're actually Donald Duck in it right now. You are completely pantsless. Oh, we're on Zoom, so it's entirely plausible. Dave, yeah. we have a deep and rich fiction in that we are actually right across the table from each other oh, at, right. all Sorry. at all That's times. At all times. That's right. So you are seeing me with a pantsless. shirt and no pants. And a nice little sailor's hat. Yeah, it's a good thing I have so much feathers up my butt, mm-hmm. as we learned in Fight Club. Now, before we get into talking about this week's film, of course, we should lean in a little bit into that deep and rich fiction that we go through each and every week. Dave, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we've been getting all these post-it notes over the last few weeks by this specter, this phantom of DDS, DDS, who has become our arch nemesis over this season. There is mm-hmm. so much fan art being created about her. Uh, Wait. Fan art that she sent in? No, no, no. no. Okay. Our fans. Our fans have been making fan art of it. Oh. It's, it's an actual thing. But uh, did you see this recent note that she left for us? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's illegible. Can you well, read it for it says, me? Meet me in the squared circle in two weeks. What does uh, that mean? Squared circle. I mean, that is, that is a euphemism for a wrestling ring. But, uh, oh, is it? It actually is, yes. Oh, <laughs> the wow. squared circle. It's a good thing you're here, because no one else in the world would get that. No, everyone knows that. But okay, Dave, you pretend that you don't know anything. I think the facade is wearing how, itself thin. How does how does a squared circle mean a wrestling ring? <laughs> it's a circle is that actually the, a thing? It, is a, it literally is a thing. <laughs> it literally is a thing. Oh my god. Um, if I don't know where the origination of that phrase comes from, my assumption that a boxy ring is a square, but because you're wrestling mm-hmm. inside a boxing ring, and a ring, of course, is also a circle, then you call it a squared circle. Okay. That's what I'm guessing. Sure. I yeah. don't know. I have literally no idea. Yeah, I'll give that to you. Why don't they call the UFC the octagonal circle? <laughs> there was some feedback that was sent into us from last week 
Great. We talked about Dragon Lord last week, the 1982 Jackie Chan film. And we probably yes. talked about the, the movie itself for 10 minutes inside of that episode. <laughs> uh, if, if you, that's probably a little unfair. We probably talked about it for a little bit longer, but we 12 did, minutes. We did yeah. get into the weeds a bit about how to rate films. I'm collating some of the responses that people are sending in here. We'll, we'll get into that over the next few weeks. There, there's two things, though, that people gave me feedback on that I'm going to read out here to you, Dave. Uh, it's fascinating how if you don't mention something that people like really want you to know that you forgot to say something. Okay. When we were talking about our own histories of Kung Fu and our experiences growing up, Rick wrote in. Rick. And I'm paraphrasing because he, he sent in a, a lot, but it's like, did neither of you lot. watch the TV show Kung Fu Ugh. in the early to oh, mid 90s? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, the answer is no. Yeah. And or I don't, I don't acknowledge David Carradine for uh, getting a job for being more white, but okay. As far as David yeah. Carradine goes, and he continues on, and or the Kill Bill franchise. It seems this was an <laughs> obvious miss when you were talking about your relationship with Kung Fu movies. Is what Rick wrote in saying. Okay. I did watch a ton of that Kung Fu TV show. There was the original show, I think, that aired in the 70s. And then there was like the return of Kung Fu. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. With his son. With his son that was in. Uh, it's the son one. That? That, yeah. What is it called? The re, not the return of Kung Fu or Kung Fu again. But what was that guy's name? Yeah, also another like quarter Asian dude. Yeah. I actually don't know what ethnicity David Carradine is, to be honest He's, with you. Oh, I'll Google it. I'm not a big David Carradine fan, why? which is why I feel like what the conclusion, you? he sucks. And the conclusion of Kill Bill 2 was awful because that uh, was the most anticlimactic fight scene because he never actually uh, fights. Yeah, okay, hold on a second. I Kung do, Fu. I will, I will, to put in a little bit of a defense, not that I'm like the hugest Kill Bill fan, I do like the conversation they have up until that point, but I wish sure. there actually had been a fight afterwards, yes. You build this movie up all the way to be like, this is going to be an epic fight, and then it's done in two seconds. Yeah, he, he wasn't capable of it. Oh, the legend continues. The legend continues. The legend continues. That's what it was, yes. Okay, so let's... I mean, we, you don't have to keep this in the... I just... Now I'm, now I'm interested. Now I'm interested in this guy. What, what, what's his background? We have to racially profile him, apparently, is what I'm asking you to do. He's the eldest child of actor John Carradine mm -hmm. and woman. John Carradine Ardenal. was a well-known horror actor and bit eh. player. Ardenal Abigail. So he's white. He's just a white guy. I thought he was like uh, maybe half Asian or something, but no, nothing. All right. Just a white dude. Always disappointing when you discover somebody is just a white guy. So the other email we got in, and you, anyone who's listening can also write into us at Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. Yes, I tried to get a longer email address, but it just wouldn't let me. Google's like, hey, take it easy. Take it easy. But Emily writes in, it's like, with all of your talk about Jackie Emily, Chan, with all of your talk about Jackie Chan and supposedly Dave loving everything everywhere all at once, it's interesting <laughs> that you never mentioned that he was supposed to be in the lead role of that movie. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's what Emily wrote in, uh, it, which is interesting, especially with the relationship with his own daughter that he doesn't really have a relationship mm -hmm. with. That would have put mm -hmm. a different metatextual, I guess, reading onto it, but I don't know. What do you mean? Oh, like, uh, sorry, which part? Uh, everything, yeah. everywhere, all If he at was once? actually in the Michelle Yao role, yeah, yeah. which he was initially supposed to be, and it's yeah. all about you know, parent and daughter specifically. It would oh, be interesting because he does not. But we're not reviewing not, that movie. Yeah, but, but again, uh, that's not what that movie now 
is because of the difference uh, that Michelle Yao brings into it. I maybe have a bold statement, but whereas the choreography could have been better had Jackie Chan been cast in that role, potentially. I don't think it would have been uh, as emotionally no, hard-hitting. I mean, it, I mean, Michelle Yeoh's uh, great. Mm -hmm. Again, tangential because we're not reviewing, mo you know, recent movies. The two kids that are kids, uh, I'll call them kids because they're young, but the YouTube guys that uh, coordinate the stunts, they're influenced by all the Corey Yuen and Jackie Chan sort of stuff. I thought the stunt choreography and fight scenes were excellent. I mean, when you can show two guys in slow motion with things shoved up their butts and still be engaged in a fight, you're winning. Yeah, I, I didn't bring up everything. It didn't, it didn't come to mind just because that movie's new. And I think I always look with a past lens. Is that fair, Kyle, mm -hmm. when we review these films? But that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. What we should really have been talking about is the remake of The Karate Kid. Probably Jackie Chan's best work. <laughs> I actually like that movie. It's not bad. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm making fun. But uh, yeah, it, I mean... You kind of put a little hate on it. The original is far better, but regardless... Uh, I don't know. Jackie Chan is Jackie Chan is great in that movie. Mm -hmm. You know, he he plays the hidden martial arts master uh, so well, and when he actually fights, it's fantastic. It's when the kids yeah. start to try and slap him, and he's like, "No, yeah, <laughs> that's not going to happen." It's a classic trope. And that was uh, when Jaden Smith still looked like a human being. Okay, Stop I don't know what it. happened to him. Stop he looks it. miserable, dude. He looks so unhappy. Wouldn't you be with your parents? No, that's parents? a whole other problem. That's a whole other problem. Is the sister just fine? Nobody ever talks about the sister Willow? anymore. Yeah, I don't know. She's just, just chilling out. A bit of a music career going on. That's good. Yeah, I think maybe he was in the spotlight too early. But he's he's pretty good in that movie too. I, I actually liked the mm -hmm. next karate. Is it the next karate? Or is that no, a Hillary Swank one? That's the Hillary Swank one. They should just call it the Kung Fu Kid. Was that too far of a departure? Okay. Talking about your batshit opinion. Kyle's freaking talking out. Talking about your yeah. batshit opinion about how <laughs> the name of a movie instantly makes it a good or bad movie uh, <laughs> that you said last week verbatim as what you said. So the technically, yes, that one with Jaden Smith should be called the Kung Fu Kid because there is uh, no karate that ever happens in that movie yes. whatsoever. Yes. The next karate? No. What was it called? Uh, who cares? We're, we're just too far off the mark. The Hillary Swank one is called The Next Karate Kid. The one with Jaden Smith yeah. is just called The Karate Kid. Oh, it's they just, just use the it's same just, name? just the same exact name. The, the, the Next Karate Kid with Hillary Swank is unwatchable. It is bad. <laughs> just wait until I make you watch movies from 1994. Those are two valid points. The first one I'll only contest, just I, that's a blind spot because I don't like David Carradine. I do, and both, I think, are... Good points in referencing modern-ish, I mean, Kill Bill is a bit old now, but mm -hmm. modern-ish films that are directly influenced by the cinema we were talking about. 100%. And involved some of the same choreographers and people, because they're all still kicking around and yeah. doing their thing. I think that's fair. I was just too laser-focused on how bad that movie was. Sure. Uh, here's the thing I forgot to ask you, though, <laughs> to wrap up that. again. Yeah. Because <laughs> we'll get into it again and then spend 40 minutes talking about it and I don't want to. How long did it take you to, to edit in post all of the peaking as we were yelling into our mics? I just want everyone <laughs> to know, however long that episode is, I think it's like an hour 25, I did cut out over 20 minutes of our conversation because like I can't, I cannot <laughs> put this much in. So as much PTSD. as you think we talked about it, we talked about it a whole heck of a lot more than what shows up in that episode. <laughs> We're passionate, Kyle. Passionate. Anyways, I was, what I was going to ask you is that as far as like modern day 
because I'm totally outside of uh, knowing what's going on currently in like Hong Kong slash Chinese cinema. Oh, I don't know either. Mm-hmm. Like, who is the modern day Jackie Chan? I think it's it's diffused too much. I mean, Donnie Yuen is still, in my mind, the premier name and he's pretty old too. I mean, he's essentially a contemporary of Jet Li. They're only mm-hmm. five or 10 years apart as far as right. debuting. So, I don't hear names and I think it's a lot like pop music. I think the cinema style has changed a lot. You don't get people who are marquee stars anymore. There's too many. Even like when Ong Bak came out and that blew up martial arts films because yeah, that yeah. movie's fucking insane. That's an amazing film. Even uh, Tony Cha didn't really make it. Yeah, right? he, he, he was of, good. For, he was, I think, popular for three years. I mean, this is a yeah. white guy saying, but I only heard his name over and no, over again uh, for like three, four years at most. But he can't, he fell into that thing where they just tried, they typecast him. They just tried to make the same movie in different clothing. And then that guy that was in the raid. Um, yeah. Um, Oh my gosh. Shit. I used to know how to say his name and now I'm totally blanking. Um, Which, by the way, The Raid is one of my favorite films of all time. Like, I love... Still, you can't get enough of the shaky cam. But, you know, it's good. Guess. Raid is good. Raid 2 is okay. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I saw a couple of Don Yuen titles. I think that's the problem with martial arts cinema. So, even uh, aside from the North Americanization of how to use cameras, it's become very violent and it's become very bloody. And I think that, and gory, and I think maybe it's losing its mass appeal. Like, I, I'm, I'm not in Hong Kong. I mean, the other problem, too, is Hong Kong cinema is now China cinema and we don't Mm-hmm. really see how that's been developing. I think they're going through their own growing pains and cultural, you know, redefinitions. So there's definitely a reductionist know. attitude of being like, well, all movies are propaganda of some kind. That being said, oh, we see that here. A lot of the Chinese cinema that I hear that breaks through is very much propaganda filmmaking, I find. Is, I mean, we we know that to be the case here. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not, Hollywood is not uh, immune to this. But that's why I'm saying like in like 2020, 2021 is when Chinese films began to show up in like the top 10 highest um, earners oh, of the year sort of thing. Oh, okay. We can see that Chinese cinema is starting to eat into Hollywood cinema, at least on the worldwide stage. And only occasionally do I find that those actually like break through into any like wider appeal. I still don't know if there has been like a, a Chinese film that has been like embraced by the West yet. There's definitely been like Indian films that have been and, and like other countries have been, but I don't know if a Chinese film like recently in like the last 10 years has been like, oh my gosh, no, like this is something know. that everyone wants to watch. There's, yeah, nothing too big. I mean, one of the things about Chinese films to my mind is they tend to currently focus a lot on their own vast historical mythology. And a lot of it becomes these period pieces about war times in ancient China or et cetera. That's what I mean. Like that's the stuff that's making it. Whereas like Korean cinema, for instance. Does both. Yeah. Does Yeah. He does the epics, but the stuff that kind of breaks through is like, we're going to do this like weird horror satire thing. And that's actually going to break through and people are going to love it. Well, there's also profile i mean there's two things there's some profiling issues and there's some cultural issues meaning you know if you watch a korean like uh, pachinko comes out mm-hmm. and i think you know a western audience might enjoy the cinematography and and the plotting of that and the performance are, are pretty good but you know korean people if they watch or read that book it's so much more personal of course sure, sure. right it, and there's a lived in experience about what it even means to be korean never mind me i'm korean canadian so i don't I can't identify with it the way, let's say, my parents might, who actually lived that era. There's Asian cinema when it comes and actually finds an American audience, like Minari. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. It's really, yeah. you could put 
white people in that movie, and it would still I was work. Say, I, th- yeah. I think the better option is is um, uh, Parasite. Well, you want to talk about Paras- Parasite? Pa- Parasite of course. is the big one that but blew up. Parasite's the same thing. You know, you it's about capitalist yes. culture more than it is about anything particularly Korean. What's fascinating about that film specifically is how much I guess I learned at the time because there were so many articles that came out like, yeah, there's like the broad strokes that anyone in any country can basically understand and be resonant with. And then like, here's all the very specific Korean references that are just going to go over most people's heads. I'm like, oh, that's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I totally didn't understand this, that, that that's what they meant in this scene. Well, that's the thing, right? Like we're talking about, if we're going to go quickly back to Dragon Lord, it's the same thing, like the beats of what makes something funny in 1982 Hong Kong, you know, are impossible to translate to 1982 American mm-hmm. mindsets. We're going to talk about that today because yeah. I think that's what this film suffers from a lot from, you know? Yeah. Well, that's a good segue here then, because we are talking about dead men. Nope. Yeah. Dead men yeah. don't wear plaid. Is this, do we just name the film? We've been recording for 20 minutes. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, Dave. So we probably should go through some of our history with mm-hmm. some of the people involved. So first off, history of Steve Martin. If you are a Patreon supporter, you have heard kind of our history with Steve Martin in our Bowfinger oh, right. episode because we did a yeah. Bowfinger bonus. That should have been in the main season, shouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it probably should have been yeah. in retrospect. Yeah. But yeah. we needed to talk about Idle Hands just so much Fuck. more than Bowfinger. <laughs> We okay. apologize. Yeah. It is funny though, because it's so bad. Bowfinger is actually a good movie. It is a good movie. Yeah. Not to say what I think about this movie. So Dave, your history with Steve Martin. Topically, Steve Martin is one of the most prominent American comedians, mm-hmm. whether he ought to be or not. I don't know, right? He found an audience in the 70s and 80s. But I'm pretty sure, and maybe you can correct me, but I'm pretty sure because it was back in the 70s, he was the first comedian to sell out stadiums. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. He was platinum records and shit. Yeah. Huge. Like I don't think people truly understand if you only know him from like Cheaper by the Dozen and like those right. later Father movies. The Bride. Yeah. Even if it's like, oh, he's the old guy on Only Murders in the Building. It's like, yeah. no, no, no. Like he was huge <laughs> back well, in the seventies. You know, I was thinking about when we if we haven't screened the film yet, but if you're the type of person like me that when someone says Steve Martin, you imagine an old guy, right. and you already have missed. Right. The part where that made him famous, right? Because mm-hmm. even though I knew him from Saturday Night Live and I knew uh, of the jerk and uh, and his some of his stand up routines, uh, I knew that after I had been introduced to him in the late eighties and early nineties, sure. where he already looked like he was seventy. I mean, it's I just know. something that happened to him, right? This is the thing: he's had gray hair for literally since his twenties, so he's yeah. already always looked kind of old. And now, yeah. when I go back and be like. Yeah, when you were watching him in the 90s, he was only like 40. Like he was like it was it's not like he was like ancient back in the 90s, but it's just like oh okay, yeah, I just thought he was so much older than what he was. The other thing for Steve Martin for me, and this again is probably cuz I kind of got introduced to him in the dip of his career is somebody that is characterized too smart for himself. Mm. Like he couldn't find an audience anymore cuz it was almost like he was making fun of his audience at some level. So there's this disconnect with Let's say like the Eddie Murphys or uh, Richard Pryor's or the George Carlin, where even if when they go into the, well, George Carlin was mostly in the uh, intellectual satire, but you know, they have a, a timelessness about it. Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor would lean into some of the more uh, dirty jokes that don't age as well in woke sure. culture, but yeah. man, they're still fucking hilarious. But Steve Martin's kind of weird because I remember watching The Jerk 
in the 90s. I didn't actually like that movie very much. I liked all his bits on Saturday Night Live. Um, he's famous for I, I like the jerk. I should... Well, that's... Uh, no one's surprised. Someone's really mad at these paint cans. I just love that. And, uh, you great. know, most recently, I love Only Murders in the Building. Yeah. And I think... Oh, I saw his... When him and uh, Martin Short teamed up for their tour, I thought that... They showed that on Netflix. That was hilarious. It's great. That little production they put together. So. I saw them live here in Calgary, actually, right. when they Let's stopped Humble break. Let's mm-hmm. take it easy there. If there's one thing this podcast doesn't need, it's people passionate about things they like. So I know he's he's good. He plays the banjo. I kind of like him, but he's hit or miss for me sometimes because uh, sometimes when he hosts Siren Alive, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I just, I don't know if that's funny. I don't know if he's just in his head. He's kind of a weird guy. So, well, yeah, yeah, he's definitely a weird guy by... All descriptions of his friends, he's a very quiet person. Like his like blah kind of personality that the dolt who talks about smart things, which I feel like what his character was in the 70s and early 80s, is really not him in real life. Like, Inverse, like he, yeah. he listens a lot. He that, that's from what I understand is kind of his personality. Whereas like Martin Short is Martin Short all the time. Like if you're just doing that, like, like, the, like he's just wow. Martin Short and he's on all the time. But yeah, I of course, liked him when he was hosting Saturday Night Live in the 90s, watched all of his stuff from the 70s and 80s when he was hosting because they always did specials of of that every so often. Got his books, got his albums of his stand-up career. Wow. There is a- wow. Posters on your ceiling. Yeah, all uh, the things. Uh, shirtless, weirdly. <laughs> no, the- uh, the Donald Duck in it. <laughs> there is this semi-famous skit that he does on Saturday Night Live in the 90s where it's it's just him in a chair. It's the Christmas episode. And he's like, you know, if I have one Christmas wish this holiday season, it would be, and anyway, he launches off into this thing where he's also altruistic and then slowly it turns into being like, I just want all this stuff for me. I had that memorized. I literally had that entire speech memorized. I could do it from memory. I can't do that anymore. I can get like a fifth of it kind of here and there. So I was in Steve Martin uh, that was a weird way to phrase that. <laughs> no, that, no that, in a Freudian reading, I think there's something important mm-hmm. there. I, I was there's in something important. Steve Martin. <laughs> I got kind of disillusioned a little bit, I think, past 2001-ish. Like, he was doing some interesting independent work with Novocaine and Shop Girl and all this other kind of stuff. So, that was kind of interesting. I actually saw one of his late plays that he wrote in the 90s, which is actually pretty good. But I've always really enjoyed his comedic sensibilities. And what I mean by that is that... He, there's always this kind of like highbrow like subject matter that he's talking about. Like as, as an example, that play that I went and saw is called Picasso at the Le Panagiel, which is basically this fake meeting between Picasso and Einstein and has this I, like these jokes about uh, like art at that time and like theories that, that Einstein had, like relativity, all that kind of stuff, but would also not be above making a fart joke. And I don't know. I just always like where there's that mashup of those two things. It's like, yeah, 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 we're when doing some works. highbrow stuff, but let's un- let's we can undercut this too a little bit and be a little bit vulgar about it. Maybe I shouldn't use this example necessarily, but that's what Shakespeare is all about too. It's like this really great comedic oh. stuff based on a character. And also we're going to talk about how people shit. And like that's like the two things that you kind of balance inside of a great Shakespeare play. Long story short, was a big fan of Steve Martin. And then kind of like the 2000s happened. I felt he came pretty irrelevant, which was too bad. Then he released his his memoir, which is pretty good. And honestly, to be really honest, the only Mars in the building was such a shock to me. I was like, this is really well-written, conceived, mm-hmm. funny, mm-hmm. and it is created by him. There's other writers, of course, but it was conceived and, and developed by him. And so it's like this career resurgence as he enters his 80s that I'm excited to see because it's like, oh, this is the Steve Martin again that I, that I, that I truly, truly love. Doesn't, isn't afraid to be silly 
but is also kind of smart in how everything is working together. Yeah, he's he's aware of what he's doing. But, you know, when you have something like that, it becomes hit or miss whether someone, uh, the audience can be in on the joke that right. he's laughing at or with. He can be polarizing, I think. Yeah. But uh, all, com- all comedians are. Well, this is a hard right? thing. Comedy is the hardest thing to remain relevant or, or to hold yeah. up over time. I, I can't understand because he does like to mug every so often. Uh, and again, you're either going to like that or you're not going to like that. I think that's the true for We'll some. find out soon enough. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, kind of the same thing for Jerry Lewis, right? Some people find that absolutely grating and unfunny. And some people, yeah. like yeah. the French, think it's the funniest thing in the world. So I think he's awful. How about Carl Reiner? Any history with Carl Reiner? I mean, Ocean's Eleven, of course. Um, <laughs> His most important work, Ocean's Eleven. Mel Brooks stuff. I mean, he's got such a recognizable face. But mm-hmm. uh, to be honest, he's not somebody that I know a lot about personally. I am sure as we dig into it, that it'll turn out he's been involved in so many things, uh, but... There's, I think his biggest mark was definitely on television. Mm-hmm. Maybe save for The Jerk. I honestly think The Jerk is really the only film that has any cultural... I don't relevance? Know, I was going to say relevance, but just like Wait. awareness. You look at every other movie he's basically directed, it's like, well, maybe, oh God, maybe. Some people will recognize that with George mm, Burns. Not me. Not this person. It had two sequels, Dave. I mean, it had a, oh, a series. The one where George Burns is God? Yes. Uh, why have I watched that? Because it was on CTV every Sunday for 50 <laughs> years. Uh, that's why you've seen that movie. <laughs> regardless. You guys so, born old. Yeah, exactly, right? Uh, regardless, I think Kyle Reiner, best known for, for his television work, he was in that fabled writer's room for Sid Caesar. So Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, Woody Neil Allen, Simon. Carl Reiner, like they were all working together and like they all went on to have these huge long careers. Like would that room be funny or annoying? Probably both. Well, with Neil Simon, I'm definitely going to say annoying. Um, <laughs> I'm, just gonna, I'm sorry to throw people under the bus, but I'm going to say that's probably what's going to happen. And then Woody was like, meh, 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 meh. we're in the corner. And that <laughs> wow. was- <laughs> Sorry, sir. Could you, uh, <laughs> could you give that to me? Pitch again? perfect. Uh, <laughs> impression of Woody Allen. Wow. But then would go on. He created and wrote for the Dick Van Dyke show. And then, yeah, he did some collaborations with, with Mel Brooks. I like my parents had the recording of the 2000 year old man, which is like their best known comedy routine. It's been updated. There was a book about it. There's a children's book written about it. Like that, that routine has been like carried through for like decades sort of thing. So I I was familiar with that. His son, Rob Reiner, of course, would be on All in the Family and then, of course, be a film director himself. So there's been like this long, long history. That, uh, that he's had definitely. Nepotism. Yeah, a little bit of nepotism. But I find, <laughs> great, one of my favorite uh, all-time things, I think it was it was uh, Jerry Seinfeld who did Cars Getting Coffee, Comedians and Cars yeah. Getting Coffee. Yeah. And he had Mel Brooks on and they're like, do you want to stop at Carl's house? And then like par- half the episode is just him and Carl like going back and forth and Jerry's trying to butt in. He's like, whatever. <laughs> and he's just like going back and forth. You can't cut into two old men talking. Oh, it's just not going to work. It's just never going to work. Especially when Jeopardy is on because they're like, I don't think that's the right answer. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you why. <laughs> I've never put that together. But now that we say Carl and Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner does look like Carl Reiner. Sure does. Just yeah, a fatter version of him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Huh. Rob Reiner is also, is one of those examples, weirdly enough, of like, the first half of his career is like banger after banger and he just falls off a cliff and never Lost recovers. Like, I yeah. don't know why. I don't know what happened. It's hard to be relevant. Uh, also, I don't know. We're in this weird crux. There's something happening with the world, Kyle. It's falling and, apart. Uh, so that's, yeah. that's great. And that's why we would like you to help support us on Patreon. 
I think the most important <laughs> thing that people can do now is help us lonely podcasters help make us you this help content. You. Yeah. Do you have any history with this movie at all? No. I mean, I'll find out that I do, but I've never heard of this film yeah, right this now. Is, yeah. I've even heard more about the next movie, which is also a movie that most people have never heard of, which is The Man with Two Brains. That at least sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Like I know more about that movie than I've ever heard about this movie in my entire life, which I think is what's so surprising. It's like, wait, Carl Reiner directed, Steve Martin starring. Why have I never heard of this movie before? Maybe we'll find out. Maybe we'll find out why we've never heard of this movie before. So let's do that, Dave. Well, let's go and take a little bit of a break. We'll go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking about, let me just check this again. Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid. I don't know why I keep forgetting the name of this movie. I mean, you you selected it. Uh, The machine selected it. Do you think you could solve a murder if it happened in your building? I'm just trying to think of the last time that that happened. Was I useful to the police? Yeah, you kind of just like jumped on their backs and and tried to steer the the physically literally yeah, sorry, yeah physically jumped on their backs <laughs> and, and tried to they came knocking on the door and they're like uh have you seen ah, like a sp- like take a me with spider you spider monkey you jumped on their backs i'm like this is how we're gonna do this investigation <laughs> well uh we didn't have a podcast yeah, yet kyle yeah. but if we uh had another murder <laughs> like, there has but that been. is why you can no longer fly so you're not able to can leave I- the country can I throw this dark fact out? Do you remember in 20, is it 14 or 15, there was a, a, a grandparents and a grandkid that, that got murdered and some guy like ran away to Airdrie? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's my neighbor. What? Not in the building, but in the park across my condo, one of the houses, that's where that happened. Oh, fun. But we came home one day and there's police every, they were doing door knocking in our condo. And I was like, what the fuck? And then it came out that day in the news that that murder happened in the house. Basically, uh, you know, I could walk there in less than five minutes. And uh, you knew him though? Like very, like you were best friends? No, no. But I did help that solve that murder by publishing a podcast and investigating it with, uh, no, I, with I didn't know anything friend. about it. Yeah, it was pretty creepy. Pretty creepy. Well, that's a downer. Let's talk about sponsors. Kyle yeah. and Dave the Machine is, of course, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefits plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online anytime on any device, making it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, Head on over to ab.bluecross.ca. I like being cool, calm, and collected. Yeah, that uh, three adjectives that have never been applied to me. <laughs> wow. Just like turning, we had a Freudian slip earlier, and mm-hmm. now we're going to full-on therapy. <laughs> Our second uh, sponsor is Pod Power. Our second sponsor is Pod Power. They make it possible to amplify the voices of Albertan and Alberta podcasters as usual, Edmontonian ones, because their sponsor is the, is it their sponsor or their collaborator? Edmonton Community Foundation? Title sponsor. They want us to give a Pod Power shout out to Book Women. 
Bookwomen is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests including Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomenpodcast.ca. All right, Dave, we have sat down and watched this movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. So let's envision a scenario here. You know, we are strolling in to watch a, a, a live theater piece. A, Live Big, theater. brash musical has just opened. You, of course- a musical. Yeah. Okay. I am, of course, in a faded tan onesie. You, of course- wow, Have decided to dress up with a top hat, tails, all in plaid, and mm. the usher who's Do taking us to our seats. You have a cane. You're oh. swinging it. You're twirling it around. Ivory handle? Uh, no, because we do like uh, elephants in this in this fiction. <laughs> and the usher who's taking us to our seats is like, you know what? I've- I've recently just heard of this movie starring Steve Martin called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Do you, do you know what the plot is of that movie? Do you two strangers who have never met before yeah. know, you know this plot? film? I'm asking can... everyone, but you look yeah. like sure. two dopes who might know about this. <laughs> you definitely know about Steve Martin. Uh, Dave, what would you say to that, Usher? <laughs> Be like, back off, back away. I don't know, Kyle, is there a plot? Yeah, there is. Is there? Tangential, but there is. But is there... <laughs> Uh, There's okay. an excuse uh, to do a certain technical <laughs> feat in this movie, yeah. which then becomes a plot. All right. You know, I, I would focus. I would say this is a film where Steve Martin and Carl Reiner thought it would be fun to uh, cut him into other movies. Mm-hmm. That's it. Because the rest of it doesn't make any fucking sense, Kyle. I, yeah, okay. I mean, I think you're being a little overblown with that. I mean, he is investigating a murder and trying to figure out who is did he? it and and all that kind of stuff. But like, all right. and it is a so. comedy. I, we should be very clear. It is structured. Is it? A, okay, Dave, stop it. <laughs> stop it. Yes, it is a comedy film. It's very clearly. Should I have laughed? Okay. There is no. one scene that mm-hmm. I died laughing. I, I You text me about died it. And laughing. we're going to have to analyze that too because it's. It wasn't funny. Oh my God, it's so funny. Okay, but it's the only thing that is. Anyways, Dave, what did you think about the movie? I think I've expressed it pretty clearly. You know what? I think um, I didn't enjoy watching this, but I didn't hate it. I was just bored. Yeah, and it, it is a boring movie. Is, yeah, to me, it's something that as I was kind of describing my impression of Steve Martin, it's almost try, like trying to be too cute, too smart for its own good, and it was not, it was not well worked. I think Carl Reiner's direction of the parts that Steve Martin is in definitely is lacking because they're comparing it scene by scene with some of the greatest film yeah. noirs ever. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like shit. Anytime Steve Martin's on the screen, it looks like shit. And then, um, you know, the way they set up the gags becomes so forced. I, I know it's hard. And so I respect the experiment, but it didn't work. So I, I really, I was yawning the whole time. I really, at the end, I watched it. I didn't turn it off, but I have no idea what happened at the end because my brain could not absorb anything. I just, it was just a flat line. Well, yeah, this is a movie that you forget about while you're watching the movie is how I term it. Like there really is not a lot there, there. I can't hate this movie because I forget about this movie. Like that's what it is. Like there's no deep seated hatred, but it is not an engaging piece. I, I do understand the impetus to make this movie. It's like, we love these film noirs. Wouldn't it be cool if we could make you kind of like 
not necessarily time travel, but insert, appear, insert into you it. in, yeah. and this is like technical exercise. And it, like that German idea, yeah, it honestly does sound cool and interesting. Like you could probably make something out of that. The unfortunate part, of course, is that you are forced to be like, well, these are the clips we have. This is how they were shot. So we can only do so much, right? I, I am sure that in, I don't know, probably not even 10 years from now, there will be an attempt to do something like this, except they can like do CGI, deep fake it, and like be literally in the scene yeah. with a Humphrey Bogart, with a Charles Lawton or Vincent Price or something like that, and it make it feel like you're actually in the film. Not that I want them to do that. I'm just saying you could do that probably more effectively sooner than later. They have done it. Do you know how they make that successful? If it's five minutes long. It's called a music video, right? Or a well, SNL that, sketch. That's the other thing. I, I, I think what I, what I wrote on my own letterboxed uh, review of this is like, at about the 30 minute mark, it's like, yeah, we get it. Like I, this, the, the, the practice of this, the actual execution of this has basically been taken as far as you can possibly go. It, it is remarkable that in just a few years after this, completely different. I'm, the only reason I'm bringing this up as a comparison is like inserting two different things together, which is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But there, in that technical exercise, they're inserting new cartoons yes, in with, with live action, different. and they actually feel like they are oh, interacting with each other. Jam. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. They're different, right? I know you, they're different. You, I'm just saying that that technical exercise is also super impressive, and so impressive because it's so seamless to with, with, with one another. This one, it's like, there's a couple of scenes. The only scene I was actually like super impressed with is when he is simultaneously beside Cary Grant, and it actually feels like he's in the same oh, scene the with train. him in the train. And he's a stranger in the train, yeah. Everything else is like, yeah, you're just shooting over the shoulder with a rear projection. I know you're yeah. not actually in this scene. I can see how you're faking this. And that just isn't as engaging. And as we'll hear how Carl Reiner had to do this is essentially like we have to find scenes that have something being said that is innocuous enough to appear in this movie so that we can like work around it. But I don't know how often it actually works in, in for, for, for me. It just feels like I they're saying nothing and there's like there's no momentum yes. to it. it. It just feels like you are oh, well, let's bring in double indemnity so we can have a scene, but it's not like moving the actual narrative forward of the movie that we are making. It's just like we're now in double indemnity for a bit, and now we're just on Strangers of a Train for a bit, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's a bit of a failed experiment. Like I do, Reading up on it, the actual technical way that they did this and put it together is interesting, but it's one of those things where I think the making of this movie is far more interesting what the movie actually is when you sit down to watch it. I do like looking at behinds. Now that being said, here's the one and only scene that I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and David's already, already shaking his head. Yeah, and you will awful. see this actually in multiple reviews. So I'm not the only person, but it's oh, him when God. he's making coffee. He went to go look for like-minded idiots. Nice. The making <laughs> the coffee scene is so fucking good to me. Why? Because it goes on for such so, an old gag. Yeah, I know, yeah. and that's why I love about it. It's it's such an old gag of like it's going on forever and ever and ever. And I think what really puts it off for the, those people who have not watched the movie don't don't. But like Steve Martin is basically this <laughs> private eye who gets roped into do, go into this new case. Like we said, he gets kind of put into these different film noirs to to build out the narrative. But there's this one scene where he goes to make coffee. And so he takes this bag and he starts to pour it in and oh, he just stands there. Make coffee for Burt Lancaster. For Burt Lancaster. Yeah. And he's pouring it in and he just stays there and he pours and he pours. And it probably goes on for like 30 seconds of him pouring it in. 
and I died because it was so good. But I think why? 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 Why would that make you laugh out loud, Dave? It is this. There's this thing called the comedy rule of thirds, right? Where like you say something once, it's funny. You say it again later on, it's not funny, and then the third time you say it again, it actually becomes funny again. This is the comedy rule of of thirty seconds, I think, is what they call it, or the comedy rule of of length, which is if you do the same thing repeatedly. It goes from funny to not funny to funny again. The best examples, again, if you're a Simpsons fan, is Sideshow Bob stepping on the rakes, which goes on for 30 seconds as well, where he starts smacked in the face, makes a little noise, turns around, gets smacked in the face. And it goes on for so long that it goes like from funny to unfunny to funny again. And I no, think this is an example of that. And because I love the fact no. that he eventually pours out the entire bag of coffee. But he like he stops every so often, looks in it, yeah, and he keeps pouring it in. Where he could have just like literally just dumped the coffee in at once. That's what makes it funny is how stupid and ridiculous it is. It's the only scene. In, it's literally in, oh, the only scene in the film that works for me. It's literally the only scene that made me laugh. I feel like I mean I wouldn't wish this upon our listeners, but if somebody's seen this, I would love to get a sane opinion about this. The fact that you have to justify that much like think about it that much and invoke rules of how this joke works makes it a dumb joke no it like was, the idea of humor is, it's it's awful awful <laughs> I, I i i don't know i was groaning i don't know cal i mean you're allowed to laugh at whatever you want to laugh about but god cal, you're giving this movie credit it's awful comedy is the hardest thing because it's either you find it funny or you don't i can give you every justification under the sun and you'll be like nope yeah, i didn't matter. laugh so i don't care the part that I kind of laughed, I uh, inadvertently actually just watched Double Indemnity and it stuck out to me, you know, those strike anywhere matches, mm -hmm. but that's such a, it's like, it's its own trope where, you know, you either have a lighter or a match or something because everybody smokes all the time uh, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and generally into the 90s mm -hmm. <laughs> before we started worrying about the health and then you know, only marginally see people smoke cigarettes anymore. But anyways, one of the opening scenes when the, the, the bombshell comes in the office and he flicks the match on, yeah. I'm like, oh, I know this. And then the, that was the end. Then well, the well, lights turned well, off. Well, well, that's the other thing too. As soon as he started I, grabbing her boobs, you know, like, and I was like, that's, come on. I, I do like all the uh, ornate like voiceover that you get in a lot of those noirs. I think they do a good job there. The, the other yeah, one I, the kind, sequence I kind of cracked a smile at is that he goes into the hotel room number two and he says, and he says that the room smelled like the number on the door, oh, which yeah, I thought yeah. was, and that's, like, that's kind of a clever little joke here. I have to be honest about things that are like, even though it did not work for me, this movie, I could envision someone who was like so in to the film noir genre has seen every film noir ever made that there m could probably be a lot of value that they get out of this because of the scenes that he is going into but also probably commentary that i might just not pick up on because i've seen like two of the movies honestly that he oh. goes into so i'm not the biggest don't have the biggest knowledge of every single one that he is uh, being a part of i feel like there might be some in jokes going on that i'm just not picking up on I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's an affront. You know, they talk a little bit in some of the writers about how this is meant to be an homage. I think it's an affront to film noir. I think it cheapens mm. film noir because, I mean, number one, you brought up, they don't even pick out, and they can't pick out um, uh, important scenes from these right. classic films because then they get drugged into a specific plot. So, you get these uh, secondary scenes, which makes them feel like those movies are what isn't working in this film when it's the inverse. You know, right. when Ingrid Bergman shows up, I haven't seen Ingrid Bergman as like a 20-year-old 
in many years. Yeah, she's beautiful. And she's actually, she's a great actress. She's got that, you know, all of these actors and actresses have that uh, real st- old school Hollywood yeah. star quality. So, as soon as they come on the screen, you forget Steve Martin's fucking doing a gag because they're just, you know, it's a movie. The lighting, you know, all of the texture of that old film, beautiful. And then they'll cut back and Steve Martin's making a fucking poo joke. Yeah. I mean, you know, I it's, think, it's, I think it's that, awful. that's the biggest thing for me after watching this where it's like, I think I'd rather watch those movies rather than watch this movie, That's, which is, I mean, is the obvious exactly. thing to say, but like every time he's in the scene, I'm like, actually, I kind of just want to watch Double Indemnity. I actually kind of just want to watch Strangers on a Train. I kind of just want to watch right? the, the, the one that the very final one where he's going through the crowd after Vincent Price. God, what is that one called? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyways, no. that one looks fun. I want to watch that movie because that looks like something the, I would enjoy. When the dummy falls down the stairs. I was forgetting it as I was watching it. This is why I was equipping that there's no plot. They work so hard to try to interweave individual two-minute scenes from, is it 16 films? 16. 17 yeah, films? 16. For what? Right. Other I mean, than to show how smart they are. And this is, I think, the problem with why I think Steve Martin lost an audience is that he comes off very arrogant in this and he plays these characters that are very arrogant and... When it doesn't work, you just don't want to look at his fucking arrogant face. When it works, it's funny because like the rake joke, someone's punching him in it. I think that's why Only Murders in the Building works so much better because he spends a lot more time at the butt end of a lot of those jokes. Whereas something like this, he's so smarmy and the story doesn't make any sense. And uh, it's hard to want to watch the story continue. Um, It's exhausting kind of like his smarminess i don't know i I like that persona of steve martin so i can't be a hundred percent with you there although i ultimately agree with your take on this movie he does come across as a little bit too important for the film the other thing about those films though again i'm going to make the comparison to who framed roger rabbit for just this one reason which is because in that movie they had they were using warner brothers characters and disney characters there was this mm-hmm. long contract where they had to appear on screen at for exactly the same amount of time which is why in that movie you have mickey mouse and um bugs bunny literally on screen at the same time they never cut away to <laughs> to them individually they have to be on there at the same time and in this one it is uh, four or five different studios they had to ask mm-hmm. for the rights for so this was a huge thing of like contracts and getting the right clips this is why i'm guessing this is hard to find a stream specifically because after studios have been bought out by different studios like the rights to this film must be like a nightmare to try and figure out like who has the right to to portray this not that i think you should hunt so much to find this movie but no. i'm just saying it's probably part of the reason why you can't find it is just because of the rights issues yeah just pay for Criterion and watch the films themselves. Yeah, 100%. That's what I would recommend people to do. Take a look at those 16 films. You can see it on the Wikipedia page for this movie. It shows you all 16 films that are referenced. Go and watch all those movies. I think you'll have a better time. I just love the philosophy and aesthetic of film noir too much. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find this, like that I would respect, is, you know, the thought experiment, like wouldn't it be cool if, and then get so upset with the execution because it's actually not possible. You know, it's frustrating to watch. I feel like other people have done something similar where they've interwoven themselves into a lot less films, but have used clips or uh, found ways to to put that together and more successful. That's the other thing I was going to say, like what this really reminded me of when Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars in the 90s, his last like four, maybe five appearances as host, he always did this. He always did this oh, package right. of him in appearing the intro. Yeah. in the intro. And it was good and funny. Why? Because it was five minutes. 
Yeah. He was just boom, boom, boom. We're done. We make our little jokes and now we're into the show. And like in this one, it's like, yeah, I get the joke. Or it's not even a joke most of the time. It's just like you're just in this scene kind of reacting, occasionally making a quip. And none of them were particularly funny. But again, this makes it sound like I hated this movie. And it's just more like I'm going to. I'm never going to think about this movie ever again. I'm never going to think about this movie ever again in my life. I think that's the biggest problem. So, you know, without like moving away from how I think Carl Reiner was the wrong director visually for this and how Steve Martin comes off as an asshole. I just, if the jokes had landed Mm -hmm. or they had found a way to set him up into each of those weird, ambiguous scenarios where he could actually pull something out of it, even if they were disjointed and the plot itself didn't make sense, it could be like we were talking about with Woody Allen and Bananas. The movie itself is not good, but there are parts that would genuinely make you laugh because he was a good comedic writer. This didn't have that. And for whatever failed on Steve Martin's part or the writer's part, if they actually had a joke, it was always the lowest brow stuff. It was a shit joke, a boob joke, something to do with sex or something. There's nothing to connect to the film noir idea of like- It feels like they got so enamored by the idea of being in noirs, which again is fun. That they forgot to be like, oh, we should actually have a, a story to go along with this yeah. or something that's, that we want to comment on. I mean, I guess that's what I'm kind of missing here a little bit is just, okay, we're going to do this film noir and go into these actual film noirs. But are we commenting on this or like, are we talking about the changing nature of Hollywood? Are we ch- talking about how anything, any type of take, I mean, there's no really no take to this other than he's appearing yeah. in all these classic noir films and that's about it. Just wanted to say that he could do it. Yeah. You know, and that's what makes it obnoxious. Which is the worst because I pride myself on being the most obnoxious in the room. Well, there's a couple other things I think we should talk about. But before we do, let's get into some of this backstory. So this movie was released on May 21st, 1982. It's rated 3.3 on Letterboxd, has a 6.8 on IMDb, a 67 on Metacritic, and on Rotten Tomatoes from 26 critics, it has a 77%. And from 10,000 plus users, it has a 72%. 72. I know, it's pretty high. high. Available on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can currently purchase it on iTunes. At least here in Canada, you can. Its budget was $9 million, and it would go on to make $18 million at the box office, which is, if converted for inflation, $54 million of today's dollars. Its plot description is, Film noir parody with a detective uncovering a sinister plot. Characters from real noirs appear as scenes from various films are intercut. It's not even proper grammar, but whatever. That is the <laughs> official plot description for this movie. It makes sense, though, uh, for what this movie turned out to be. It's yeah, a perfect yeah. description of it. It didn't make any sense. Well, Dave, now is the time that we play everybody's favorite game. Guess, Guess that, that tag. This is when I get to don my handsome blazer, pick up the long Bob Barker microphone, and you have to guess what the tagline to this movie actually was. When you go into a movie theater, of course, you see that row of posters of upcoming films, and you're like, mm, mm, Thor, Love and Thunder. What witty quip might be on this poster to entice me to watch Chris Hemsworth's butt? Probably a dick joke, if I know Taika Waititi, but anyways. My ass is Thor. <laughs> so... Is is the well. one of these is the actual tagline. The other are two that are completely made up by me. So is it the prime suspect is laughter? Is it laugh or I'll blow your lips off? Or the crime of the century is solved and the comedy of the year? God, I don't know. I hate them all. <laughs> no offense, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go with one. What was one again? The prime suspect is laughter. Sure. Incorrect. 
The right answer is number two. Laugh or I'll blow your lips off. Really? Yeah. I'm guessing that is a reference what does that to mean? I'm guessing it's a reference to a famous line that I'm not understanding. That's what my that's my guess. Blow your know. lips off? Is that a thing? Because they even do that here too, right? They do that famous like, you know how to whistle, don't you? Push your lips together and blow, but they say something else. They they invert it anyways. They they do a, a run on that famous line. Oh god. Is it over? Can we turn off the mics now or Oh, do we still have to talk about <laughs> the star is Steve Martin as Rigby Reardon, Rachel Ward as Juliet Forrest, and Carl Reiner as Field Marshal von Kluck. Dave, anything you want to say about uh, any of these actors that we haven't already said? Not really. Oh, no, we talked about Steve Martin at length yeah. in two episodes. The only thing I wanted to bring up, I forgot to just quit. The Dick Van Dyke show was supposed to be Carl Reiner's show, yes. but the producers didn't think he'd make it. Right. So he got put to the side. And the fun, two other fun facts of the Dick Van Dyke show. I know you say and claim you've never heard the term jump the shark before, but mm. uh, the Dick Van Dyke show is considered to be one of the very few shows that never did, that always stayed good, uh, according to that website. And secondly, uh, his wife in that, of course, is Mary Tyler Moore and the Dick Van Dyke show. She would make her own TV show, the Mary Tyler Moore show. And when she starts that show, she had in the pilot initially it was that she had divorced her husband to move to the new city and test audiences got really upset that she had divorced dick van dyke is what they thought that meant so they uh, had to say that she, so they had to change it to he died we are we are not smart i know as I, a culture we, are i we? know when I, whenever i read stuff like that i'm like but these audiences were dumb right like you you don't have to follow that because <laughs> whatever oh my anyways God. Lowest common denominator, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the other thing with Steve Martin is uh, what is it in in terms of becoming modern vernacular? He created the really right, like the mm -hmm. is that right? And then the air, is it air quotes that are attributed to Steve Martin I as can't well? Remember. But um, yeah, he's had some he, innovations. Yeah, he's uh, he's too smart for himself. And then the female lead is a pinup model. So, well, she did some yeah. other stuff. I just can't remember yeah. the other big one that she was in. She's a very 80s, beautiful yeah. lady. That's right. Like she is very attractive and uh, that's about it. That's why Steve Martin decided to fondle her breasts throughout this movie. It was probably not even in the script. Yeah, I, I still think that's such a weird gag to continually weird. do in, in this. But regardless, Dave, this is the crazy thing. Cinematography is by Michael Chapman. His top four, of course, are Evolution from 2001, the David Duchovny oh, no. film. <laughs> But Taxi Driver from 1976, The Fugitive from 1993, and Raging Bull from 1980. So he did know how to shoot in black and white. If this guy did Raging Bull, this movie ought to have looked better. Mm. So I think this is Carl Reiner's issue. I really do. I think he didn't have the capacity to shoot, uh, to build the lighting that right. whatever the masters did like you watch a billy wilder film there's something about him whatever, sure. whatever he did to make that high contrast but still have people appear in the frame carl reiner did not have that magic because this thing looks flat as fuck it's so flat kyle it's and you don't notice it until they cut yeah, to a back, masters like, oh and God, you're like yeah. oh wow this is dull like it looks awful that's always Anyways. my thing too like this is a broader thing i know i shouldn't care so much 
But there's a, been a bunch of stuff, and it's Stranger Things being like the biggest culprit of this, of stuff that's supposed to be an 80s movie or look like an 80s movie. And it always bugs me because it never does. It's like, that's mm-hmm. not what 80s movies look like. Go back and watch an 80s movie. <laughs> These are, you've, you've uh, diluted the colors too much. You're using uh, whatever, too many advanced new tricks. This that doesn't look like an yeah. 80s movie. Anyways, that's me being weird. And I don't think it's that weird. I think I think that there's a difference between being inspired by something and doing a callback. And I think that if this had just been a film, a neo-noir film, yeah, yeah. and they shot it the way they shot it, I don't. nobody would notice. But if you're going to put them side by side, yeah, you think you're like if you're going to shoot Super 8, and then, you, you know, J.J. Abrams is going to put a Spielberg film inside that film, you're going to be like, what? Like, yeah, J.J. Abrams, your camera's better. But dude, it it's not E.T. Like there, there's a... There's a difference. There's a textural difference. Yeah, so. there's a huge difference yeah. if you shot a movie and then just with a filter made it black and white and then put it next to a Billy Wilder film. And you're like, um, there's a big difference that's going on. Yeah, there. and not to be too much, you know, of a technical purist. We don't know. We don't know if it's how it's preserved. We don't even know if what we see is what people saw in the theaters. I have no idea. I mean, it was physically reproduced. Well, they didn't see in color back then, so that is. That I'm, is no, true. I'm just saying, you know, film stocks and yeah. and different projectors and all that kind of stuff. But from what's been preserved. Uh, what the way I I still you know sometimes you look up YouTube videos or I'll, as a photographer see how those old masters would light things and it's fascinating especially black and white because you don't have to worry about color gradation but you do have to worry about how colors are picked up on film I mean it's magic and uh, I think that's what was missing by Mister what was his name the cinematographer he missed the he missed it somehow Michael Chapman they should never have allowed color films in the first place. This is written by Carl Reiner, George Guype, and Steve Martin, directed by Carl Reiner. The story goes that Steve Martin, Carl Reiner, and George Guype are having lunch one day, and Martin brings up this script idea that he has, and how that in one scene, he wants to intercut it with a film noir. Like, that is really what the concept is. It's like, I have that this idea. That would have been great. Great gag. This snowballs into the three men coming up with the idea of just having the entire film being intercut with classic cinema. So they collaborate on the interstitial scenes and then Reiner and Guype get to work on combing through dozens of classic noirs that they can grab different scenes and lines that they could work inside the movie. Carl Reiner is quoted as saying that what he was looking for was that the scene had to be general enough to work, but also not be so innocuous as to mean nothing. Which I don't know if they nailed that or not, but they eventually collect all these scenes that they want to use refine the script, and then jump into filming. Now, I think the biggest divide here is that Martin decided not to watch any of those films because he did not want to mistakenly emulate a different actor. He just wanted to come in and do his own thing. Now, for some backstory here, George Guype started as a TV cameraman, got into documentaries, and then moved into fiction filmmaking. The two scripts that he's known for is this film and the next Carl Reiner, Steve Martin uh, project that came out the following year called The Man with Two Brains. So they were kind of working this partnership. However, two fascinating things about Gype, one cool and one very sad. The cool one, he, being an author and a novelist himself, is responsible for the novelizations of two big 80s films. So you, you probably remember this growing up, Dave, that oftentimes there would be like, the movie would come out and then like the novelization of the movie would be released. Uh, did you ever buy one of those? No. Uh, well, name name something. We'll see. I mean, I think I, I had the E.T. So. one, like the novel of E.T. No, I definitely did not. I have know that, that they do. There's a famous one where because usually how the novelization works is they take the shooting script and then write a, the story. Mm. But sometimes 
endings and other things can change after the editing goes through. Is it Terminator? There's something. There's a famous movie where the novelization has a completely different ending than what the movie does because, again, they're based on the shooting script, not the actual movie that has come out. Anyways, he wrote the novelizations of Gremlins and Back to the Future. So it's his name <laughs> is on those novelizations. Okay. That's the fun fact. Yeah, the sad thing about Gype is that so this movie comes in 82 he would die in 1986 at the mm. age of 53 do you want did you read up how no he was stung by a bee oh that sucks he was extremely allergic was on vacation in california get get stung and is pronounced dead on the scene so he was like pure his career was kind of starting out for him and he uh, passed away really quickly we've talked about the technical aspects of this film that are interesting two people that they bring aboard this film that are important to talk about uh one is Edith Head. This is her last movie that she would ever work on. There's actually a big um, message at the very end of this film, like saying this is dedicated to Edith Head. We thank her for all of her work. Do you know about Edith Head? No. The most nominated costume designer of all time. I think she's also won the most costume design Oscars. Have you seen the Pixar film, The Incredibles? Yes. Do you know the character Edna Mode from that? Yes. That is Edith Head. That is literally based on her and how she talked and how she was and how small she was. She had been working since like the 30s or 40s. So she actually worked on a lot of those noirs that we actually see. So they brought Mm -hmm. her aboard to make the designs for the other people within the film. They also get production designer John DeCour to design the sets. He had also designed the sets since the 40s. So he knew how they did them back then in those noirs. So they were trying to make this as realistic as possible. And then we've talked about how they're really shooting over the shoulder for a lot of them and using these 16 classic films. I have to say, when it comes out, it is generally well-reviewed for for the most part. We're here to tell you in 2022, bupkis to that. It (laughs) sucks. I defy anyone to be like, at the end of the year 1982, and you went up to them and say, do you remember Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid? And they were like, that was a movie? (laughs) <laughs> I defy anyone remembering this movie at the end of the year. Just bring up the production crew uh, and these famous people. You know, it's interesting. And again, not to speak ill of the dead, but I think this is Carl Reiner's failing in this film. Like when he's making the coffee, that set, that claustrophobic kitchen, you see that in nearly every 40s yeah. movie. The costumes that everybody's wearing, they look legitimately like period right. costumes like or whatever you want to call it, you know, of that era. There's nothing wrong with those pieces. No, I, I think what you're touching on, and I think this is what I didn't really clock in, but now I do. They, they're getting the sets right. They're getting the costumes right. But the camera isn't right. Like it's the not actually wrong. placed where they would do it in an actual film noir. So it feels like there's too much incongruity going on. So we're seeing the classic yeah. cinema. And then when we come back to the stuff that's not inside those classic films, like this feels weird and off and not. Uh, connected with everything else because the camera is not in the right spot quote unquote not the right spot yeah there's something and maybe that's what separates the genius directors and the camera and you know dps or whatever from the everyday i have no idea because both you and i don't actually make films so i don't know how much how much the director weighs in on this but even if carl reiner had you know, obviously grew up loving all these films. They're coded in his brain because, you know, when he thinks of film noir, he's going to think of a certain way to light something. It just did not translate in Steve Martin's scenes. So mm-hmm. I don't know how to fix that problem. You know, maybe it's the film stock. Maybe they just don't have that old school stuff right. anymore. You know, I have no idea, but yeah, it was flat, 
Low contrast. Too little contrast was the biggest criticism against you two when you first started this show. Honestly, there's only one last thing that I wanted to bring up. So there's that recurring joke of when they mention the cleaning lady choking. that he goes yeah. insane and starts choking them, right? Awful. Do you know that this is a reference to something as well? No. This is referred to as the slowly I turned vaudeville routine. So like the Three Stooges had done this. Um, Abbott and Costello had done this. I think uh, what did they say like um, Lucy... Uh, Lucille Ball. Thank you. I was gonna say Lucy Ricardo. I'm like, that's her character name. That's not her actual name. But like all of them have done like variations on this. And the whole concept is like someone's retelling a story and starting to get more and more agitated. And then the person they're telling it to says a word that triggers them. And then they either choke them out or slap them or whatever. I'm only bringing it up because it's something that they return to again and again in this film, which feels like it should be a better payoff. But, uh, I don't know. It just well, it's like sucking the bullet out. I mean, I, they're just tired jokes. So the first sucking the bullet out, I was like, okay, fine. They kind of returned to that well one too many times for well, me. Uh, the rule of thirds, whatever. I, <laughs> I You know, I forgot to bring up with Steve Martin and, and just bringing up this idea of being too smart for himself is that, you know, he studied philosophy and he studied yeah. academically before turning to comedy. And so in some of his quotes, I mean, you might know better because you read the book. He has a very over intellectualized and over rational approach to comedy. Like yeah. he's intentionally like, so he'll take this idea of a recurring action, but make it something so violent and so over the top that he's giggling, but I'm not. You know, the first time he starts choking this woman, you're like, what the fuck just happened? I know. I the was second like, time so it happens, you're like, why is this happening like, again? I know. I, the, the hard part about this is that we are looking at this from a 2022 context, right? And I think people are just much more attuned and aware about like, not just violence against women, but what how that is communicated in films and stuff like that. Like when that first happens in the movie, like where is this movie going? I only thought he was going to yeah. kill this woman. I'm like, I thought this was a comedy. I thought this was supposed to be something that was funny. It just is overly aggressive. And I think it's not that I don't think that that could have been funny. I just don't think it was executed in a way that made me laugh. The classic way to do that. And this is why I think it's intentional would be like, if he gets a nervous twit, you know, tick every time it happens. And then in the end, that one small movement ends up being able to trigger an event that kills the bad guy. Uh, and you see that definitely in nearly every physical comedy movie, mm-hmm. right? But to do it so over the top, I, I think it's intentional. I think this is him essentially just taking a piss at it. For me, it was awful. And by the end, the so-called payoff, it's not funny anymore. It's its just so dumb. I just, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you can tell Kyle, but I did not enjoy watching this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I can't even say I didn't enjoy watching it because I did not feel like it was seeping into my brain at all as I was watching. <laughs> it was like, well, there's things happening. This is technically a movie that I am watching. Uh, they work so hard to put too many clips into mm-hmm. that there's no story by the end of it. He's just bouncing yeah. left and right to add an extra clip in. Again, I think the setup to this is, is fairly funny where he and the the evil person played by Carl Reiner are trying to say how everything happened, like what the actual plan was and executed, and they're tripping over each that, other. Okay, that scene was funny when they're talking over each other. I forgot about that yeah. because this movie's forgettable. That scene was pretty funny, but that's also a callback to a Mel Brooks gag, right? Yes, where, it is. Yeah, where they're trying to be the person who actually tells what actually happened. And it is funny. I do think that the setup is funny, but it also, I couldn't help it in the back of my brain. Like you have to have this scene because nothing else up to this made any sense. Exactly. Like you exactly. have to actually say what was happening because nothing actually interrelated to one another. We're done here. Um, all right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up. So it's time to get into critics choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this movie was released. Here's the interesting thing. 
Pauline Kael did review this movie. Roger Ebert didn't. So I got this Fernando F. Croce from Cinepassion to be nice. the, the Roger Ebert stand in this week. And he writes, a parlor trick, but the kind and inquisitive jester making his way through the ghost of cinema's past that gets Godard at the moviola to put histories together. What? Film, film noir provides the found footage. Steve Martin's Seamus cavorts through its uh, classic scenes as they're stitched together to a mock pot boiler about Nazi spies and kidnapped cheesemakers. Richard Ward is the sultry client. Philip Marlowe himself, Humphrey Bogart, out of The Big Sleep, is the assistant. The hero rummages through an office looking for clues and walks Alan Ladd from This Gun for Hire. Later, there's booze money for Ray Milland in The Lost Weekend and a bottomless pan of Java for Burt Lancaster and The Killers. Since Barbara Stanwyck had already turned up in a clip from Sorry Wrong Number, Martin dons the double indemnity wig and is pounced on by Fred McMurray. For this editing experiment, Carl Reiner gets Michael Chapman's cinematography to approximate the genre's smoke and shadows and avails himself of Edith Head's pinstripe suits and Miklos Rose's strings. Martin's anti-femme fatale lament deserves to be quoted in full. They reach down your throat and grab your heart, pull it out and throw it on the floor, step on it with their high heels, spit on it, shove it in the oven and cook the shit out of it. Then they slice it into little pieces, slam it on a hunk of toast and serve it to you and expect you to say, thanks, honey, it was delicious. The denouement brings Reiner's Preminger impression and Rennie Stintoni's rendition of Pedro Armendariz's and brings it to the 80s. Promises a sequel oh with nudity, God. but never happens. I don't get most of those references and I feel like a bad movie watcher, but still. Why? You're not. The guy's pretentious and an asshole. What the fuck was that? It, it, you know, it's just like this movie. They tried so hard to be something and ended up being nothing. Well, you There's didn't... no way that that review actually makes any English sense. I have no idea. Well, you can thank Fernando F. Croce from Cinda Passion. When you see what him was that? What were they trying to say? They're saying that they it was liked it. Yeah, they liked it because of all this okay. cool uh, symbology of having all these people in the same movie. Uh, so that that was a positive review. That was a positive review. Okay. This, okay, is, what, this, is, this is what Pauline Kale had to say. Steve Martin stars as a private eye in this spoof of detective movies. It splices together footage of Martin and footage from films of the '40s, such as White Heat and The Glass Key and Double Indemnity putting him right into scenes from the movie past. The director, Carl Reiner, worked with dedicated craftsmen and achieved a smooth composite. Even the sound levels were carefully matched. Reiner and the others must have become so proud of their workmanship that they didn't register what a monotonous droning feat they were engaged in. They smoothed out their one big chance for comic friction, the contrast between old and new. Martin has a few good silly gags, but you may find yourself fighting to stay awake and losing. Thank you. <laughs> I, I do agree with Pauline Kale this week. I don't actually normally, but this week I actually do agree with her. I think she's spot mm -hmm. on. All right, Dave, does this hold she's up? She's back too. We haven't heard from her yeah, in a while. It's so. been a while. It's been a few weeks. She yeah. did not like the big muscle bound man, so she didn't review a lot of those, <laughs> those movies. Dave, we ask this every week. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? No. No. Yeah. No, no, but do go and watch those old movies that they're referencing. I think that that is your better use of yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. If you, love, if you love film, you need to be getting some film noir in. And if you have Criterion, they're not all black and white. They've got a whole series of Technicolor ones. Mm -hmm. And my, the my call always, Niagara, is fucking fantastic. But I just watched Double Indemnity. There's so many good films that you don't need these people trying to... I mean, are they honoring it or parodying it? It's You just don't know. 
I just no, don't this know. Is, this is awesome. This is kind of, in, in, in a way, I don't think it fully does this, but in a way, it is similar to many what they call like meta musicals, so musicals that know that they're musicals. And what always rubs me a little the wrong way for most of those is like, aren't musicals stupid? Like, that's kind of what the subtext is. And it always drives me nuts. Like, no, 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 no. You can, you can make fun, of course, but it's like, you're still a musical yourself. So are you saying that right. you are bad? And it is it, it always takes me out of it. And in this movie, it's kind of a similar thing. It's like, aren't these noirs kind of stupid and silly? And it's like, well, then why am I watching this if this is stupid yeah. and silly? Yeah. If I love noir, I'll hate this movie. And if I hate noir, I won't understand it. So it's really not, right? It's not <laughs> it's meant for, for anybody. no one is what we're trying yeah. to say. Anyways. It's for themselves. We do need to rate this film. But before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave at VSTheMachine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos onto our YouTube channel, so we're almost up to 100 subscribers over there. You can be our 100th, perhaps, if you go over there now. If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to rating this movie. Dave, what are you going to give Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid out of five? By the way, even though they do say that that phrase in this movie, apparently it was explained even more so in a scene that was cut from the film. So just so you know. Yeah. I mean, the title doesn't make any sense. I don't know, Kyle. It's hard. I want to give this a pretty low rating, but like you said, is it because it was bad or because it was boring? That's mm-hmm. a tough one, man. It's a tough one. I think I'm going to go with the two. I feel like it should be lower, but there are some bits that are fine, I guess. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Well, Dave, weirdly, we're exactly the same this week. It feels like we're back in 1999, where we basically give the same rating to every movie that we talked about, except for South Park. So the this is going to average out to a two uh, for the same reasons you're saying. It's more boring than it is like absolutely bad, but there's no world in which I will consciously choose to watch this film ever again. So it ties with one movie. Do you think this is better or worse than The World According to Garp? Worse. Yeah, because at least the, the World of Korean Garp has John Lithgow in it. So at least there's something <laughs> in that movie and to enjoy. It's like they have three actors that we like in principle. It mm-hmm. was just set up incorrectly in our opinion, I think. Yeah. You know, it's not even like the story was going to be an outright failure. It was just shot, I think, in the incorrect tone. This thing's just, it's like masturbating. <laughs> there's just Whoa. three guys sitting there jerking each other off in a fucking restaurant oh, that made and they me go and film. watch this movie it's like masturbating <laughs> uh okay well that's not is, even like a pink narcissist i mean they can right. do better than this <laughs> they can do better okay well that is going to enter into our list at the new number 22 position so right underneath the world according to garp right above greece 2 so that was supposed to be our palate cleanser <laughs> uh, from all these like action films that we've been watching uh-huh. here recently. So I guess let's find out what we're going to be watching next week here, Dave. I'm going to push this button. Well, we're, we're back into action. We're going to go to First Blood, the first Rambo film next week. Awesome. That's going to be great. Can you ask the machine why this movie, why now? Why did we just put... <laughs> so much effort. <sighs> I mean, we just had a good run. Whether we liked Beastmaster or Dragon Lord or not, mm-hmm. wouldn't it have made sense to just go to First Blood and then 
theoretically the next film if we knew what we were going to watch. Maybe. And maybe there was something to do with schedules and how we had to organize <laughs> episodes in the back end. But who can tell? I don't talk to the machine ever, so we'll, we'll never, ever know. Oh, my God. All right. Well, first, but I'll just don my little bandana here right now. Cinch it up tight. It's and, not a bandana. Uh, you, was it, was we'll, it called? We'll talk about it. All right. Yeah. Well, all, co- all, all cops are bastards, though, right? Am I right? Actually, you know, I'm reading this book. Did I tell you I'm reading a book about uh, overcoming bias? Mm. Yeah. Anyways, the latest chapter- You probably hate it, right? That's my bias against you. The latest chapter is fascinating. It's uh, breaking down. It's it's a little overlong because it's so present in American culture, but it's breaking down the, um, some of this gun violence against minorities, etc. But when they talk about psychoanalyzing what it is like to be a police officer in the States- I mean, if you want, I think, what's the book called? Oh, I think the book's called Overcoming. I'll ask Kyle to write it down. You got to look for this book. It's quite good. Overcoming Bias, I think, or end, The End of Bias. The End of Bias. Is that right? Are you Googling it? No. I do like looking at behinds.